Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 18 of the podcast. This week, I had a lot of fun speaking with a fellow Chicagoan, Dr. Joe Manning, the William K. and Marilyn M. Simpson Professor of Classics and History at Yale University. His research interests are in the economic and legal history of the Hellenistic world and Egyptian history. His current focus has been the historical interpretation of the Greek and Demotic documentary texts of the Ptolemaic period, the role of archaeology in the context of Ptolemaic economic history, and the applicability of social science theory toward understanding the contextualization of the historical developments in the Ptolemaic Empire. We dug into why classics and Egyptology need each other to succeed, examined ways to break down boundaries between the humanities and sciences, and had fun speculating what a numismatist as a film or TV protagonist would look like. This conversation offered me the unique opportunity to ask questions about both Egypt and Greece, which is not something I can often do. Enjoy the episode, and I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you for joining me this morning. I just wanted to start out with a little bit about your background, as in, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what are your areas of interest? Well, I'm from Chicago originally, born in Champaign, Illinois, at the University of Illinois, but grew up in Chicago area. Um, bit of a weirdo, but not so strange for um, for ancient historians or Egyptologists in, in getting a very early interest in um, in Egyptology when I was 10. Um, combination of various things from school, but also from visiting the Field Museum back in the day when it was an old-fashioned museum, which I I rather liked. Uh, was, I haunted the halls of the Field Museum in, in Chicago and the Oriental Institute when I was a kid um, and never lost that interest. Um, so I was... Uh, captured by the, by the field in a sense. And I've, I've gone off from there to do different things, but sort of related to Egyptian material primarily. Um, from legal and economic history based on the later demotic language Egyptian material primarily, primarily Ptolemaic and Roman Egyptian material. Um, but now sort of doing a lot of climate his change uh, and climate history um, work that I've fallen into because the science now is so good. Um, and we know a lot about the Nile anyway, from historical records and from physical records. So it's a it's a hot area that I've uh, fallen into seven years ago or so and working on that pretty much full time these days. So I've evolved quite a lot from from being a 10 year old, which is a good thing. But that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, that's awesome. I Well, I have a special place in my heart for the Field Museum and the Oriental mm-hmm. Institute, because I also grew up in Chicago. Uh, oh. And that's and and I'm actually sitting in Chicago right now. Are you? So, oh, I didn't I didn't know that. Oh, great. Yeah. So unfortunately, with COVID, I can't go to these museums, which are yeah. right just downtown. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I I I when you said that you had these very fond memories of going around and and being a, a regular at these at these museums. I did too. When I was in high school, all I wanted to do was be at the museum. So it was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it brought back a lot of good memories there. So, <laughs> yeah. okay. 
I also wanted to be an Egyptologist when I was in sixth grade. I got it in my head that I was going to be the world's greatest Egyptologist and that I was going to. What did I? Oh, my gosh. I think I said I I came home and I told my parents I'm going to be the one who finds Akhenaten's body and like Nefertiti's body. I I was like, I'm going to do all this great stuff. And it, you know, life doesn't work out that way. So I ended up going classics instead. But I know that you kind of have dual expertise because I, I believe you do some some Hellenistic Egyptian crossover stuff. Yep. Is that right? Okay, yep. great. So yep. how did you make the decision to do like how did you get to that decision? Because I know so many people would say, okay, I don't want to do both. So they usually choose uh, one. So yeah. how did you figure out, hey, no, 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 I I can do both. Yeah. Uh, boy, that's a good, that's a good story. I, I think, you know, um, I was, I was a very geeky kid, very shy, still am shy, but it's a people business that we're in in academia. So one does what one has to. And, you know, as a kid, at some point, I must've been 12 or 13, I, the Oregon Institute, I was a member <laughs> of that place, um, as a kid and they have a, an open, they used to have an open house once a year where you could wander the hallways and professors were actually in there in their offices. And I wandered into this professor's office, George Hughes, this kindly old man, an amazing man, uh, amazing scholar. And he had all these demonic uh, papyri from Hawara sitting at his desk, literally, that he's, he was working at now for years. The, the edition of these things is now out. Um, and he just explained to me that these are real estate contracts and he was reading them and I couldn't, just couldn't believe it. I go, wow, that kind of information is really attractive, really interesting. That sort of captured me when I was a kid. And that's what I ended up studying uh, when I was a graduate student at the Arnold Institute. Um, and, but I also had historical instincts. Uh, so not just reading the texts, which is what a lot of people do or translating them, publishing them. But the so what question, what do these things mean? What do they mean historically? How do we understand this world that we're looking at? Because these are real real human beings um, who are selling their houses or leasing their land. It's just so fascinating and so immediately appealing. But what's the world they're living in? They're living in a multicultural, very interesting world. And to understand that, you have to, you have to look at the Greek material. You have to look at what Greeks are doing because they're running around in Egypt quite a lot um, after 300 BC, but they'd been there long before that, of course. So I guess I was always interested in reconstructing uh, what life was like, in a sense, holistically. What is human experience like? Um, who are these Greek neighbors that we hear about in, these, in the house sale where the guy next door is a Greek soldier, for, for example? Um, and we have a lot of bilingual material. We have a lot of Greek language papyri, a lot of demotic Egyptian language papyri, a lot of Aramaic uh, papyri, the archaeology is quite diverse from this period in Egypt. So, you know, in order to understand the whole world, you have to um, go past the disciplinary boundaries, which are a real bane, um, actually. And, you know, the old story about doing papyrology, about doing this kind of Greek or Egyptian language-based documentary material is that the Greek language people would translate the Greek stuff and the Egyptologists would translate the Egyptian stuff from the same family archive, you know, it was divided up between departments. Well, no, it's, it's, it's one family archive. You have to, you have to do it together. And this is what the, the Leuven school in Belgium is so good at. And I was, I've been really influenced. I have a lot of good friends there. I spent a lot of time there now. And you have to understand the world whole, that it is a multicultural bilingual world, um, at least bilingual. And the more you know about it, the more languages, you know, the more you understand how fascinating, how complex the world was. So that, that sort of forced me to in, you know, there's, I think there's no other choice. You have to do classics. You have to do Greek, at least. You have to understand the Greek material, the Greek cultural material as well, and how it's interacting with Egypt uh, and what that, what that causes in terms of cultural change and social change, which it does. So anyway, it, it was kind of forced on me um, once you see this stuff, you go, okay, I gotta, I gotta go off and do uh, that. I have to go, have to go learn Greek and um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's so, so it goes. And so was doing the Hellenistic period all part of that deliberate attempt to combine Egypt and Greece because that's where they met or were you ever seduced by the idea of like 
old kingdom middle kingdom egypt which obviously is so far back that there just isn't greek stuff yeah well i mean egypt's fascinating and of course once you go to egypt and spend time there it's just more amazing no i mean yeah the political history of the earlier material i mean it is interesting there's great material but it's pretty fragmentary the further back you go which i i never really like no i was not really attracted to the pyramid age per se what I'm, what I'm attracted to about Egypt, though, is it's a place you can do long-term history. Um, it's one of the few places, China's the other one, really, where you can do long-term political and economic history um, because there's documentation that goes pretty far back. And so in terms of some things about long-term history, I'm very interested in it. And of course, the Nile River, above all, I'm really interested in. So anything that gives me something about Nile River conditions, I will go and get. Um, even if it's from Neolithic period Egypt, um, if, that, if that makes sense. So in terms of the overall environment of Egypt, yes, I, I want to go as far back as, uh, as the Holocene record uh, takes us, let's say 10,000 BC um, or so, because that's really interesting to get some long-term history, which is really important for all kinds of reasons. But to drill down on one particular period, I mean, you have to have expertise, of course, in something. But the Ptolemaic and the Roman material is so appealing because of the density of the record, which we don't have earlier. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I think that's really valid. I would say I was interested in earlier Egyptian history, Mm -hmm. but then again, the evidence is just we don't have as much of it as as we do from the later period. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's, yeah, uh, I think it's a shame uh, because I'd love to have more and more and more. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. I have some some late period colleagues who would say, well, we're in Greco-Roman material, but if I had my choice, I'd, I'd study the Old Kingdom. If we had the records from the Old Kingdom like we do, then I'd, I'd be all over the Old Kingdom. And yeah, you can, you can sort of understand it. Uh, of course, it's the first great phase of Egyptian history um, with yes. a lot of accomplishments. Um, the cultural material we have from then is spectacular, and it, we just have hints of it, of course. So yeah. I can understand why you'd want to go back. Definitely, um, and the, the frustration age. of not having the the records you want. Yeah, definitely the pyramid age. I mean, when I was younger, it was all about yeah. the the pyramids and the mummies and the yeah, I don't know, dead things. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so and I don't know many scholars who combine. Well, and and I mean, I know they're out there, but this is, I suppose, just like a me personally thing. But I don't know many scholars who also have some kind of. Um, more contemporary component like economics that they add to it just because I don't usually associate scholars liking money financial math things and history just that's maybe a me thing because I just don't like dealing with finances but so where does where does the economy come into all of this now what what is it about like ancient money that got you yeah so I think it's probably personality um as you say I like economics and law broadly as as disciplines as as fields um it's challenging to look at ancient economy because it's not the same thing as modern economies of course so one has to be really careful about using modern analogies or modern theory i like that challenge actually so in, in part it's appealing i think in part uh, i was at stanford for a lot of years and um, the social sciences, the historical social sciences, and especially economics at a place like Stanford is, is rather dominant um, and, and pretty spectacular. I mean, there are economists, forget how many economists there are at Stanford, Stanford a lot um, in different, in the business school, in the economics department, in the Hoover Institution, um, in political science. I mean, they're sort of all over the place. And so it's hard to avoid. And so in part, when you get into a crowd there of interesting people, which I did, um, I, I just started attending economic workshops, economic history workshops every week, I mean, for years. And I got, I got kind of a, an education um, hanging out with, with people. And that's eventually convinced me to, that you could do some pretty serious economic history of the pre-modern world with some of the, some of the theoretical tools that people like uh, Doug North, who was hanging out at, at Stanford in the winter, he's from was at WashU in St. Louis, but he was in at Stanford um, in the winter months. He was an amazing intellectual um, on economic history and economic theory. So it just sort of, it's like everything else good in academia and sorry, but it's true. It's serendipity. 
you you just fall into things like going to a bookshop or a library and finding a book next to the book you're looking for, which is a breakthrough that becomes your dissertation or your next book project or something else. You know, it's partly serendipity. It's the place you're in and being open to learning and being open to talking to people and not being closed off in your own little world, but, but being open to wanting to learn, I would say, which is after all the fun part of being in the academy. Um, oddly, it's not so normal, but I think, it, I think you would find that, you know, the best people are open-minded and say, I, I, want, to, I want to know, I, I want to learn. And that's sort of, I mean, I sort of naively was doing that. So I, I, again, I sort of fell into it going, oh, gee, that's interesting. That's, that's cool. And have, have pursued it, well, you know, for a lot of years now. But I think it was probably being at Stanford and being in an intellectual crowd where historical social sciences, sociology too, um, were just so dominant um, at that institution. So with the ancient economy, it's, I would say, a lot more simplified. A lot of these ancient cultures, they relied so much on trade and exchange and even inter-country um, bartering, I suppose. So it's it's a lot more simplified than it would be today. So when you kind of compare and look at the ancient versus the modern economy, does, does the modern economy fascinate you or interest you to the same degree? Is it because it's just like like an all-encompassing fascination now with how economies work? Or would you say, no, 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 I'm much more like interested in the ancient economies, the modern one. I understand it, but I don't really go into that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I am interested in, in, in economics to the extent I, I, I can be, of course. Um, and, and the modern world, it is obviously very different. I was just having a conversation earlier this morning about this. You know, there's a lot of things that an economist or even a someone interested in the ancient world would look at an ancient contract and say, like a real estate sale in Demotic from 250 BC and say, God, that looks really modern to me. Um, and indeed, so the thing is, uh, it's actually an ancient feature of modern societies. It's the other way around. Um, that some institutions, legal institutions, even some economic institutions around agreements, around credit, and so on, go pretty far back um, in, in history, that things were worked out in these uh, earlier societies. They're sophisticated. They're, they're less complex than modern societies, to be sure. But they're, they're quite sophisticated. And some of these things that were worked out uh, even in terms of trade, like the Phoenicians and, you know, how do you construct a contract with a people you don't know that you're encountering in Spain, but you're trying to bring stuff from Spanish silver mines uh, back to the Eastern Mediterranean and you're exchanging textiles, let's say. You know, the Phoenicians were working out, I think, pretty sophisticated contracts already to uh, to this end. And so that's, that's an important thing um, to consider historically with all the differences between ancient and modern, um, for sure. We just can't import modern things or ideas back onto the ancient material. Um, but the, the more important point, I think, is that we, there, there are ancient features in our, in our system that are still around because they're pretty decent. Um, they're pretty decent institutions. Yeah. So would you recommend then current economic students taking ancient classes or vice versa, just based on what you know? I do. Yeah, I have economics majors. Uh, I taught the ancient economy in the fall here and half the class were economics majors. Uh, yeah, and, and they love the class. Uh, they were and they were surprised by a lot of the material and it, you know, it, it opens their minds to a different world to a different way of thinking uh, to economics is not just about the last 50 years. Uh, which is how economists often work on things and try to solve problems just based on post-World War II world, um, which, is a, which is a different world. But, you know, if you look back, let's say a couple thousand years or, or 3,000 years, you have a, a different understanding of the evolution of human societies, of good and bad institutions, of even some institutional solutions from the ancient world that might be interesting in a, in a modern context. So, um, and that some of the modern rules, even, even the Doug North material that we call new institutional economics, which is history-based, 
around prop history of property rights, let's say, uh, it actually, the theory doesn't work so well looking at ancient uh, material. We have to kind of revise the theory a little bit, at least, at least try. That's, a, that's important because that's an ancient historian contribution to modern theory, at least potentially. So we can engage, we can engage with modern economists and modern economic theory on some level with the historical material. And I think that's really, I find that really um, valuable uh, because, you know, not that economics should dominate uh, things and economics is a pretty powerful discipline that does tend to be a bit imperialistic um, in the academy. Um, but no, actually history matters um, and lived human experience matters. And the further back in time we go to reconstruct lived human experience, the more valuable the kind of social science reductive thinking is, I think, I, 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 at least I, it should be. So no, I, I welcome, the thing is I welcome the dialogue just like sitting in economics workshops or economic history workshops or legal history workshops that are very diverse um, in a world where a lot of it is American, American legal history or American economics. Hey, I work on Egyptian material from 300 BC. I'm an odd duck here, um, but it, it actually can work if you have open minds. It, of course, it doesn't always work, but I find that conversation can be potentially productive and it's really good for ancient history, for Egyptology, for Assyriology, and for other fields that are rather, can be rather uh, reclusive, can be rather shy to get them to engage in a wider circle in the academy because their stuff matters, even in different contexts. It, it makes Egyptology more important than just for Egyptologists or for Assyriology or, or classics, you know, whatever it is. This I like, you know, because it, it, it creates a space that we can build some new we can build some new work. We can create opportunities for graduate students, um, some new kinds of research, some new collaborations. I think all of that is exciting and really good. Yeah, and so I think that's all really, really good info for anyone to know. I, I took a, what was it, like a financial planning course and mm. just not really, I personally just, that's not what I engage with, but. I suppose if I had had someone to tell me, no, you can really integrate this because what it seems like you're learning while, well, yes, it applies to modern day. There's some ancient principles here. I think if someone broke it down and really walked me through it, I probably would have found it more, much more interesting. And so I kind of now want to go back and take some sort yeah. of economics yeah. class just to see what I would have gained from it. So that that's one thing that I kind of regret. But I would say... Then as an expert, as a scholar of the ancient economy, but also having this great perspective and, and looking at how it affects now, how it affects the last 50 to 100 years, if not uh, maybe 150 years, whatever, just looking at mm -hmm. sort of, we, we are very America-centric. Mm -hmm. So what would you have to say to some of these modern squabbles that we, we fought about in the past and we're still fighting about now? So you know, we've had several different economic ideas filter through this country, uh, Reagan economics, the economics uh, after the uh, Great Recession in 2008. So that was a completely different strain of thought, I would say. Mm -hmm. when you look at people having these squabbles and then you hear chatter around our country of, oh, well, how do we fix our our entire economic system? Do we fix our, our taxes? How do we change all this stuff because the system is not working for us. Mm -hmm. Looking at that, you know, what would you say uh -huh. to these people? And from an ancient historian perspective, I mean, there are a lot of lessons from the ancient world uh, that we sometimes have a hard time. We're trying, but we have, it's a hard time to, to truly understand uh, because of the differences. But I mean, the, one of the great lessons is demography, of course. That's a very boring, old-fashioned topic. Um, and the ancient world is much tinier than the modern world. Just look at the population size. You know, I mean, the whole of the Roman Empire, whatever it was, uh, forget the estimates. Let's say it's 50 million for the whole of the Roman Empire. It's something like that. Egypt, ancient Egypt at its height in the... In the First couple of centuries AD, let's say, is population height before the 19th century is maybe it's 5 million, maybe a little less. You know, what's the population of Egypt now? 80 million plus, and it's growing by more than a million a year. I mean, there's a huge population growth in a place like Egypt. You know, I mean, the, the lesson, one of the lessons is that demography is a huge driver of historical change. 
Um, another driver of historical change is, is climate, uh, short and long-term climate change. Um, and you know, the lesson is we have to be careful because unexpected things happen at a time when you're not expecting it, at a time when things are already kind of unstable. Um, this can be really problematic. And this is sort of obviously what we're facing now. We know that historically too, although different levels of climate change than what global warming is, is doing to the planet right now, I think. But there are lessons about equilibria, about co uh, cooperation. For example, you know, we are, the, the history of the human species since we emerged um, is cooperation. Um, that's, that's the success story is we cooperate. And if we don't cooperate, we're it's not good, <laughs> basically. Um, and we, we, we have forgotten that in a world where economists uh, are telling us and, and investment bankers are telling us um, that we have to grow by, by 4% every quarter, this sort of thing. You know, it's not possible to grow at 4% every, every three months for infinity. We kind of run out of resources um, and we get really competitive with the resources um, and that we run into problems. Again, we kind of run up against a ceiling of, of, of cooperation in a world where, you know, we're, we're probably reaching some sort of caring capacity of planet Earth in terms of human population um, at some point. We have to sort of step back and kind of uh, think about what that means for, for human societies. Yeah, globally, for sure, given the resource issues that are global, um, but, but even in our, our communities, that we're better off cooperating and we're better off taking care of each other as COVID-19 also um, uh, shows us. We get these pandemics that happen every now and again, historically. And we're kind of learning that lesson, I think, uh, in real time now. And, and history, ancient history, to be sure, has lessons there um, for us that I think probably, if you think about for a minute, have policy implications you know, that again, actual human experience matters a hell of a lot, not just what's on paper and what we can draw up on paper for, for growth or for American dominance in the world or whatever it is. And since you brought up this great point that economies and the environment have always kind of been tied together, especially when mm -hmm. you think about ancient cultures like Egypt, where their entire food economy trading everything just kind of relied on the nile rising every year so if it did they were great if it didn't they're hosed so from historically being so tied together and then making the case that it's still very tied together mm -hmm. is it so so what must you be thinking when you see people today trying to take them apart and say no 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 they're completely separate because we yeah. can have our cake and, and eat it too over here, but we can just leave all that environment stuff to the side because we're doing so well, like they shouldn't be connected. Yeah. So, I mean, I know we're kind of heading that direction now that we would now we can, we can actually live outside nature or, or we can create colonies on Mars. Um, I, I don't know. I have a lot of reactions to it. One of them is um, there is, um, and this is EO Wilson, uh, uh, actually the great Harvard biologist who's said this in one of his, one of his nice books, I think it's his book on consilience, that um, you know, uh, the, the further we, we, we rely on machines and technology to solve problems, um, the less human um, we are. You know, and, and, and there is this, the idea of the singularity and that he, he, machine and humans are, are joining, will become one at some point. I sort of don't like that idea myself. I think there is, what, ancient, what history teaches us is, I mean, uh, and what humanities broadly does is we are we are a human species, um, and, and, you know, which we it's easy to forget. Um, but I think we should keep in mind that that uh, there is something about being human that I think is really valuable. Um, and we tick a certain way, we operate a certain way, um, and we're messing with that possibly a, a little bit. And if we rely on technical or technological solutions. Yeah, maybe yes, maybe no, uh, these things will work. I mean, I'm just thinking about uh, geoengineering, which a lot of Silicon Valley and other people, Bill Gates, I think, and others are saying, well, that's the, in case of emergency break glass solution, we can geoengineer the atmosphere to, to cool uh, the earth, reduce solar radiation. Um, sure, we can technically, technically do that. 
But what are the consequences of doing that? Lots of them. Uh, we know from our own work uh, what this this sort of uh, with this will impose drought in um, sensitive parts of the world. Probably not all predictable, but it also does things like it would turn the sky brown permanently um, and not blue. I kind of like a blue sky just because I like a blue sky. It's sort of what I know. I don't want to see the sky brown all the time, for example. So, you know, we, we're a powerful species that can now change things and maybe engineer our way out of, out of problems. But there are, there are other solutions about living in harmony with nature, which goes, I mean, look at the native, our Native American brothers and sisters and their attitudes toward the environment. Gosh, I mean, this is, a, this is a good way to live, I think, is to live in harmony, to live in balance with nature. So I, I think we still live in nature. And if you, I'm a, I'm a mountain guy. If you get out in the mountains, it's pretty, pretty fabulous. It is part of being human. Um, and it's easy to just order stuff online from Amazon, get all your food delivered. And you don't even know where the food comes from. It's just sort of, here's your food processed or, you know, or, or not. You have no idea of where the fish comes from, how it's, you know, what the ecology, is it farmed? Is it wild caught? How is it caught? All these things, you know, we're, we're disconnected. Um, I think all of that is, I think all of that has some, some harm um, uh, attached to it. I really do think, um, you know, to, to be human and wh what that means by looking at humanistic text, I, I just think is foundational. Yeah, and so we've, we've now firmly established that these things are very interconnected, the economy and the environment. And yeah. those aren't just things that affected the past. Obviously, we're talking about things that impact us now, that impact mm -hmm. our future. So mm -hmm. in this day and age, when everyone is trying to defund humanities programs, take away money mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they don't care about us, because they think we're unimportant, I think the whole basis of this discussion has been proving the point that this is stuff that everyone studied. They would have probably a greater appreciation of how we treat our our home, our planets, uh, mm -hmm. our countries, our economic systems, our people mm -hmm. um, in a better way. So mm -hmm. is it just maddening then to see that people don't really seem to find any kind of practical reason to study these things? I mean, you know, is this can we can we turn what you've said into a, a, a valid argument to say this is exactly why we need to be funding these things more i mean i don't think any you know what's the harm is kind of where i'm coming from yeah well, yeah what's the harm but what's also the positive good I, I i would say i so here's how i look at it yeah i mean it's potentially it's it's sometimes a little bit discouraging with students too and you understand the distraction and the the great stress people are under um these days um, to, to want to be practical and to want to be presentist, as they say, think about the now um, and the short term. Um, I think the humanities has so much benefit for taking us out of that, for sure. And actually to slow us down. I mean, humanities generally, the work of humanists um, is slow, but that's a, that's a hugely beneficial um, thing to slow down and to think. And humanistic research is slow you have to slow down and you have to think. That's a huge benefit. Yeah, it's frustrating that not everyone sees that given, given the hyper movement, the, the Twitter social media world we kind of live in. Um, I do think we have to slow down. Um, we do have to unplug and, and disconnect. But there's also uh, more important things about the humanities. Um, from my point of view, I would say um, it's up to the, if you as a humanist engage uh, with the economists or the public policy people or whatever it is, the lawyers or, you know, I, I just think we, we have to engage um, and we have to make the case at, in different ways that the stuff we're doing matters. And it matters at multiple levels. Um, even the historical data we have, just from a data point of view, I think in the climate change work we're doing, we have historical data, my stuff, you know, back to 300 BC, a lot of interesting material that climate, climate scientists and climate modelers don't have um, and don't understand. This is what we're doing in our project now is linking historical data with climate modeling and statistical analysis 
and paleoclimatology. Um, and it, it works really well. We can actually reconstruct environments now in some detail pretty far back in Egypt's a central place for this given the Nile and given the records we have. Um, and so it's directly relevant even to modern policy concerns about, about East Africa and the Mon East African monsoon and how it behaves and how we know it behaves historically, et cetera, et cetera. So at different levels of how to be human, but even just from a data point of view, the humanities has a huge amount of just centrally important material in it. And nowadays it's up to the humanist to say, hey, listen to me, make the case. Um, and it's, it's hard and it's hard. You don't always get the attention. That's frustrating. But I, I think it's a challenge that we should just accept. And I think also here's where the opportunity is. And I find that with undergraduates for sure, grad students these days are a little bit more worried given the job market and, and the academy at the, at the minute. But I think if you engage and think through stuff, you know, there's huge opportunities uh, for, um, and actually all sorts of work to do that's yet to be done. You know, so I think we're at, we're at a frontier. I think we're at this, I'm, I'm waxing eloquent just talking to you, uh, but I think we're at a, at a new frontier of humanistic work, which is only gonna get uh, more interesting and more important in the next 10, let's say 10 years or so. But we have to keep pushing it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious, I mean, it's okay. You, I don't know if you would know this specifically, but I'm just curious, do you get a good sense of how many students on any given semester or year you get who are not in classics or something classics adjacent? Oh, most of my students are, are not. Most of my students in an average year are um, doing um, public policy or economics or, or history, but modern, modern fields, modern American history, the tiny minority of students are doing ancient stuff. As a, as a subject, small numbers. That's so interesting. So maybe is that a way that we kind of make an actual tangible case for ourselves? If these people who are in charge of the purse strings want numbers, would it be feasible to take people who also teach similar things that you do, take the, the data from these classes and say, look how many people um, are not classics people or Egyptologists, do you see how relevant this is if everyone taking this class are involved in some more modern field where it's it's perceived that they're going to go on and either earn the big bucks or they're just going to impact and change the world because they're poli-sci yeah. majors? Yeah, I, I, totally, I totally agree with that idea. Uh, and I think it, it definitely appeals to, um, to undergraduate students in my experience. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to get people turned on. I mean, you know, that the project that I'm working on now that I'm driving is funded by the National Science Foundation. Now, there, there are not a lot of ancient historians. In fact, there are none. I'm kind of proud to say that have gotten NSF funding for the kind of climate work we're doing. Um, and it's, it's odd. I mean, they were struck by it. Ptolemaic Egypt. What is this? Um, what are these records? What? Uh, Oh, but it's got Cleopatra in it. It has the Nile in it. That's sort of appealing, you know? Um, so I'm happy with that funding because it gives us a kind of a, a public profile and appeal to a lot of students. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm employing six undergraduates at the minute on our project who are doing various things, even reading literature um, or they're, they're, they're geophysics majors, they're history majors, they're... Uh, Classics majors, I just hired a classicist um, who was amazed, I think, by the, by the work and didn't know about it before. That is cool, uh, I think. We gotta, we gotta do more of it because I think once you say, you know, these boundaries between humanities and sciences and social science and physical sciences, I say, get rid of all the boundaries. Um, let's just talk to each other about problems and issues and, and how we work and let's try to understand how an ancient historian works, how a how a geophysicist works with material. And there's not, I mean, obviously differences, but there are similarities um, and there are points of commonality that are surprising, but, but really energizing. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I mean, congrats also on the NSF funding. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's a, an achievement in and of itself because uh, ancient historians making a case for science funding is 
an interesting thing. Yes. But yeah. okay, so I I'm just I'm so curious it when you watch any kind of TV show or film about the ancient world and you see some kind of trade or barter or maybe some talk of or the rudimentary economy they're dealing with in the mm-hmm. fantastical world mm-hmm. for the most part do you think those portrayals are accurate or are you just seeing like the most basic caricature of what we think bartering back then would have looked like oh yeah i mean mostly it's it's a caricature not so careful um not always though there's a great bbc documentary that uh that came out a few years ago on the serapium at Me- Memphis in the Ptolemaic period, which is really well documented. And it was based on a, a, an archive of papyri that we have. Um, and it's a fairly good one hour film on the lives of these people. And it shows Greeks, uh, it, shows, it shows coinage um, and shows the marketplace and, and exchange in the marketplace there. So that, you know, sometimes um, if you're thoughtful, uh, it can be decently reconstructed i think you know so it's not it's not all jazzy uh you know over dramatized stuff from the ancient world but i mean that is the temptation to kind of over dramatize and to to appeal to certain presuppositions about the ancient world let's say so how do we make and this is going to sound so funny because i these are words i never thought i would say in my life but how do we make Uh the ancient economy appear sexy to to in modern pop culture i mean i've let's see when when the film arrival first came out in what was it 2014 or something i i remember thinking this is like barrier breaking because i can't remember any time that the hero of some action sci-fi kind of film was a linguist. And I was like, this is great. And it brought so much press to linguistics departments with the whole language thing. It was, it was phenomenal. So I've never, to my knowledge, I don't think there's ever been like a numismatist uh, who, for those listening, that's that's someone who studies ancient coinage and coinage in general. But I've never heard of like a numismatist being your hero of some action story. So yeah. do you think it would be possible to find a way to make a numismatist the hero of a story and what kind of story would that have to be to be compelling <laughs> to make people want to watch it and then oh, get gosh. them into it I, I don't know i would say paparologist would be a much better hero than a numismatist would be <laughs> it's competition between the fields um that's much sexier to, to go off and find some um some archive of new material that's going to open up a a brand new world coinage is a little bit more it's a little more difficult to to use but you can make the case um you know the coinage tells us a lot about circulation a lot about the politics of a particular place and who's using coinage who isn't what what is coinage for what kind of transactions there's uh, does um coinage imply you know, it's, uh, you can begin to think about uh, reconstructing things on the basis of coinage. Coinage is interesting as, as an object of material culture because it actually directly relates to um, what's called neural economics, which is on the cutting edge of economics these days. Um, economics is becoming increasingly a behavioral science. Uh, and uh, the evolution of coinage, which emerges interestingly historically twice, maybe three times in history. And that's it. Uh, it was invented once or twice, probably, um, in Western modern day Turkey, um, in China, probably, and then possibly in India. That's the third one. And But there may be some connection between the Mediterranean um, coinage and, and India. There's some dispute about that. But you know, let's say, let's say three times in history, this, this thing, this idea is invented and it's still with us. Um, although Bitcoin may or may not be changing our, our, our lives with that respect, but we've had coinage and what coinage means for transactions, for trust, for social networks. I mean, you know, there's a lot that coinage and that kind of money implies uh, and how states work. Uh, you know, there's a, it, there's a lot behind it. It's related to law codes. It's related to legal systems. It's related to all sorts of 
things, again, going back to cooperation um, and trust that human societies need in order to function and they need at scale because the larger the societies are, the more you need um, trust networks and cooperation. Otherwise, otherwise we fall apart. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of interesting work and ways to think about what a coin in a particular place means. So yes, I could imagine I could imagine movies or if you're talking games, um, I'm less informed uh, of, of that, but I could imagine just finding a coin somewhere that might tell us a lot about, uh, you could tell stories about a single coin. Oh, I don't know, let's say it's a, a coin of Alexander the Great um, famously, you know, but it's found, let's say it's found in Spain um, in a context that's 200 BC from the archeological record, you know? Well, what, what does that imply? Is it trade? Is it, you know, who dropped this thing? Um, you know, you can, you can imagine all sorts of things about how that coin got there, what it means 200 or hundred plus years after Alexander had died, um, you know, about circulation, about ideas, about ideas of Alexander the Great and his campaigns that really impacted the whole of the ancient world after his death, and so on and so forth. You could, you could construct all sorts of narratives around a single coin or around a single papyrus letter somewhere ab about that world, that lost world, um, as it were. I think I'm I'm biased because my one of the last classes I took as an undergrad my senior year uh, at the University of Missouri was I took a, a a Byzantine art and archaeology course with my wonderful professor Dr. Marcus Rotman and uh -huh. I remember he gave me free reign to pick whatever topic I wanted to write my final paper on and being the oddity I was I said I'm not going to just pick one of these old churches or something just really random. I said, I'm going to do Byzantine numismatics. I know nothing about oh. ancient coinage, but I like the look. But I also knew I loved the idea of studying iconoclasm. Um, and for those unfamiliar with iconoclasm, that's just the breaking of the images, whether it, looking at them was considered heretical or not. And so I wrote an entire paper. It was like a 20 page paper on the changes on the coins. And so sometimes I think I would love to see some kind of movie or TV show that is set kind of with you, a numismatist as your hero. And then you have them finding coins, both from the iconoclasm and from the period between when there was an iconoclasm. And then you could create some convoluted storyline like, oh no, whether you're pro or against iconoclasm, you have to find these coins. And then you have the key to the, the future or the past and knowing what's coming or what's not. There's a second iconoclasm coming. Oh no, how do we change it or stop it or something? I think that would be a really fun storyline. I hope someone in Hollywood is listening because I want uh, you to create yeah, this. No, there's a lot of potential, and of course, Bit Bitcoin itself creates creates a, a lot of oh, what's the word? Um, tensions or, or problems? I mean, the whole history of coinage is about sovereignty um, primarily, and states don't give up sovereignty, and they they usually monopolize the issuance of coinage for a good reason. And so, Bitcoin presents it's it's amazing. It's allowed to exist, I find, because it's against the interest of states. But anyway, I think there's a lot of interesting things, even, even juxtaposing ancient coinage with the idea of, of Bitcoin as, this new, as a new thing, maybe, um, as another contrast. I think that would be interesting to, I don't know what the movie would be about, but I think that's interesting to think about. I think it would be super compelling. Uh, I, I, please, someone, if you're in Hollywood <laughs> listening, please like take this, use your creative minds and create us something that we will love to, to go watch and see our hero numismatist over here. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So at the end of every podcast, I have each guest read uh, Shelley's version of Ozymandias. And oh. after reading it, if you could just give us your quick thoughts about the, the poem's meaning, its messages, and any other thoughts you kind of have about it, just because it, it is such a, a deeply evocative poem. So Indeed. Yeah. Let me pull up the text because I don't have it memorized. <laughs> okay. Only, only super nerds have it uh, memorized. Have it memorized? Yes. It's a poem. Uh, when did we read this? In high school normally at some point? I can't remember, but this is one of these, one of these poems that is probably in everyone's mind more or less. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive. Stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. There we are. Um, the imagery is fantastic. I always find in this. Uh, and it's one of these poems, I think, where, uh, you know, you can impute meaning to it um, <laughs> depending on your mood and time of day and, and who you are. It really lends itself to all sorts of um, in, interpretations. I mean, the most basic one, I think, just would be, uh, you know, the folly of human um, ego, of building thing, you know, in, in the face of nature, because I'm working on climate change nowadays so much, you know, that human, humans next to nature, you know, we are, we are still tiny beings that we might be changing the balance there. But I think in the end, nature wins. And I think we should uh, probably accept that and live in harmony with nature it's better i mean that's my contemporary reading of of this as you can be the greatest king you can be ramses the second uh and build all sorts of stuff but look at you um you're all everything you build is just dust basically with respect to um the desert which is way bigger than any one human being um so yeah those are kind of the initial the initial thoughts that what humans build is subject to um, decay, um, decline of being insignificant. Um, yeah, what matters maybe are the human relationships, not so much building stuff, but the being human again is about cooperation, about relationships, about living in harmony. That's better than building large statues of yourself. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> uh -huh. how I usually think about the poem. That's that's usually mm. the definition I give. So that's that could mm -hmm. not have been a more perfect answer. And <laughs> so just kind of playing off of that, those quick thoughts, that definition, which is what I use as well. Uh, the last question that I usually ask guests, because it's become my favorite question ever, 
is mm. going off of that idea, that definition that you've just wonderfully given us. Is there anything today in the modern world that you would say is a modern Ozymandias? Is there a modern Ozymandias? They're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, they're all, they're all over the place in, in, in various ways. Just walk around a, a campus and look at uh, some grandee who's given a large amount of money and has a building named after them, um, for example. You know, uh, that's, that's everywhere. Um, there are also big monuments to human, human um, ego. I mean, everywhere you look in a world that's increasingly unequal, um, where a, a few are controlling uh, lots of the money, you know, um, it's easy to think um, that the, the human ego and w wanting more always, uh, you know, for, for what reason? Um, for status, for prestige? You know, it's just going to become a broken statue in the desert. With uh, so, you know, why why pursue uh, that? For example, you know, it's better to do some human good, um, I think. And and why not be anonymous? Um, it, it always sticks in my in my uh, craw a little bit to see uh, fancy buildings, uh, buildings we don't need uh, necessarily. But somebody somebody's ego says, "I'm going to give you a large amount of money, but I, I want to memorialize myself or." or my family uh, forever. It's like a large cemetery writ large or, or something, you know. I mean, and that's human vanity. Uh, you could do other things um, for societies that's not sticking your name on a large building that a campus doesn't need, for example. That's probably better, um, probably better off. Um, maybe better off being um, anonymous and, and doing good work, helping people in various ways. God knows lots of people need it. So yeah, I mean, that's, I think, I think we have many Azimandias, uh, way too many of them, actually, in ancient Egypt, maybe there was just one, one guy who monopolized uh, the, uh, the Azimandias large statue business. Um, but now we're, uh, you know, increasingly self absorbed, in general, uh, and the very, the very wealthy are even more so. And um, I think that's, I think that's a, problem yeah and unfortunately i don't know how we pull ourselves out of it um you know if we're if we're thinking about the statue itself yeah it's it's kind of destroyed it's shattered it's i mean we wouldn't even know about it if it weren't for the mm -hmm. artisan who created the thing mm -hmm. um but mm -hmm. i'm sure that Ramesses thought he would uh, his civilization would reign for Mm -hmm. ever right for for yep. millions of years and um mm -hmm. yeah yep. so it's it's an interesting place where you 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 find yourself kind of at the at the pinnacle right i would say most americans would say we're at the pinnacle of creation of our society and we're only going to get better and so mm -hmm. sometimes yeah i wonder well 200 200 years from now much less 2000 years from now what from right now is actually going to still be here? It's a, it's a question I ponder quite often. Um, and I think it would be yeah. interesting to see that is if the environment does not kill us first, because mm. we're not treating mother earth very kindly. I don't think. Yeah, no, we're not for sure. Yep. That's true. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for agreeing to join me on the podcast. Oh, sure. It has been so lovely to be able to talk to you this morning and, and hear your wisdom. And it's, it's always exciting to discuss uh, the economy and the environment in, in the context of both the ancient and the modern perspectives. That was great. It was great to be here. That was a lot of fun. That was a very fast hour, actually. <laughs> I know. It always seems to go too fast. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, 
King of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 